with you this morning and finishing out John chapter 10 as we started through this chapter last week. And I'm so thankful for what, Josh, you prayed for us this morning, that whatever God's word is showing us, revealing to us, that we would humbly submit to God's word and believe God's word and remember that God knows all truth. He is much wiser than we are. And so may we, as, as Josh has prayed, receive God's word. And so I'm blessed and, and privileged and excited to finish out John chapter 10 with you all this week. I had a bit of a humbling experience about probably half an hour before you all arrived to the church this morning that up until this point, nobody knows anything about except for me and God. I'm going to share it with you. As I was walking back, and I, and I can see it right now, it's kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. There's a sign back there, and I'm looking right out, it says, please do not enter. Well, my office is up there, and the printer is up there, and I need to go back and forth, and there's a rope across there. And I just thought, you know what, I don't need to take the rope down, I don't need to carefully step over the rope. I looked around, I'm just going to jump over the rope, I'll be fine, I know I can do this, I've done this so many times. Well, I jumped over that rope, and my left foot hit the sign, and tore, it's actually torn a little bit. If you look closely, I know you're all going to be checking that out after the service. It's there, and I fell, and the first thing I did is look around. Uh, you can't really see my arm, but it was a little brushed up, so I'm back in my office like, I've got to get ready to preach, but it was super humiliating, but thankfully nobody was around, and until now, but now you all know about it. I'm sure you have discussions like this as well. Maybe it's with a spouse. I know I had this I can't remember exactly what it was about, but I, was, I think it was probably like who sings this song or what band does this, and my wife and I were debating. It was friendly. It was fun uh, going back and forth, but I was so determined that this guy did not sing this song that I just wasn't even listening to her arguments, and I didn't even want to look at like, the Google page when she put it up in my face to show me that she was indeed right. It's super humiliating. That's because we're so convinced oftentimes, and we're so secure in our own abilities in our own intellect, that it can actually be super blinding to truth that is right in front of us, right? And as we look at John chapter 10 today, I think that's exactly what's going on. So if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, before we read there and while you're turning there, let me pick you up what's happened since the Good Shepherd passage, which we talked about last week. About a month or so has passed because we'll see that now is the festival of dedication. So scene has shifted a bit. It's the festival of dedication. And this is actually not in Old Testament. You won't find this in your Bible where this feast came up. It actually happened between the periods of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was around the year, or exactly the year, 167, that Israel faced one of her darkest moments in history. Antiochus Epiphanes, king of Syria came in and desolated Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. He even murdered thousands of Jews and sent many other thousands of Jews into slavery. And then he had the audacity to set himself up in the temple, to declare the temple, the altar in the temple, to be an altar to Zeus, the Greek god. But under the leader of a man named Judas Maccabeus, otherwise known as the Hammer, that is a great nickname, the hammer. He led a revolt against the Syrian king, and stunningly, the Jewish people came out victorious. The temple was recaptured and reconsecrated back to the worship of God. 
every year since, there was a feast, the Feast of Dedication, that Jewish people would celebrate for eight consecutive days. And this Feast of Dedication is sometimes referred to as the Feast of Lights, or we're probably all much more familiar with the term Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Here comes Hanukkah. There was a song written about it. I'm not going to sing it this morning. But it's Hanukkah. It's the Festival of Lights. And it's in this season when Jesus comes on the scene and enters the temple. So would you read with me John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, and we will finish out the chapter. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works of my Father, then if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Father, would you help us as we consider John chapter 10 to know what it means and to believe it and to worship and to love Jesus even more because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can feel the coldness in the air. It's the middle of winter, John tells us. Maybe you can see the lights glimmering from all of the homes where the candles are flickering to remind the people and celebrate God's past deliverance from the Syrian army. But it's here where Jesus is quickly surrounded. It's hostile filling. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, yes or no. Stop talking about sheep. Stop using metaphors. Yes or no. 
This isn't, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm really thinking about your claims. I want to, you know, maybe grab a cup of coffee sometime and let's sit down and let's think through this. That's not what they're about. Jesus, stop speaking in word pictures. Tell us, are you the Messiah? But how Jesus responds to their question, and it goes through the end of the chapter, as we can see, was far beyond what they were anticipating. And it's in this passage where we are plunged into some deep truths about who God is and what our relationship is to God. Really mind-blowing truths. And so if you're a Christian here today, and I trust that many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you are, I hope so, I pray that you would find deep confidence from this passage, true security, unmovable hope that makes us want to love Worship and live for Jesus even more than when we walk through the doors. But if you're not a Christian and you're in here this morning or you're watching this, thank you. We're glad you're watching or you've joined us this morning. But this passage is not only for Christians. Because even if you're not a Christian, this passage is an invitation for you to look at the claims of Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe again to seriously consider what he's saying and believe in him. See your great need of him. So that's what I pray, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, watching or here with us today. And while there are many ways we could think through this passage, there are many truths coming out of us, here's the main idea for us today. Here's the main idea from this passage, if we could put it all together. The deep longing we all have for true security is found in Jesus. The deep longing we all have for true security is found in Jesus. So we must know who he is and trust him. Sounds simple at the end, doesn't it? We must know who he is and trust him. We're going to think through this in three sections. First, the never-ending pursuit of security. The never-ending pursuit of security. In the first century, there was no single understanding of what the Messiah would be like. At the same time, there were some common elements that united all of the Jews. And as some some commentators note, this is what they come up with. First, if you were a Jew, no matter what you believed about the Messiah, no matter what sect you were in, you believed that there was one God, the Shema, as we heard read this morning in our scripture reading. No matter what you knew, even if you're not a Jew and you knew anything about the Israelites, what you knew about them is that they were monotheistic, which means they worshipped one God. Not other gods, not like every other culture in the world with the majority of God. There's one God. And they also believed, secondly, that through this God, the God of the covenants, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one day he would rescue the world. He would defeat Israel's enemies. And third, I don't know how else to say that, but the law, the Torah given to Moses, and the temple where they would worship God were really, really important in all of this. So those three things. There was one God who's going to send a Messiah to defeat Israel's enemies, and the law and the Torah, the the law which is the Torah, and the temple were super important in all of this. And so we're reading this. The people wanted the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah. They longed for the day when God's people would be truly secure, from all of her enemies. The problem is Jesus didn't fit their concept or idea of Messiah. Jesus talked like he was equal with God. 
Jesus tells them to pay taxes and, get this, love your enemies. Jesus rebukes their teachers of the law and talks about tearing down the temple. It's as if he stands against everything they're thinking the Messiah should be. So at this point in the story, tell us plainly, Jesus, are you the Christ? For Jesus to say yes or no would actually add to the confusion, right? Because if he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, what he's saying when he says he's he's the Messiah is something completely different than what they think he's saying when he's the Messiah. Same terms, very different definitions. But what they're really after, as we see as the story unfolds, it doesn't at all seem like a genuine question, a genuine seeker. Because notice how Jesus responds there in verse 25. I told you. In another sense, I already told you. Kids, have you ever heard your parents say that to you? They're not saying that to be mean or rude to you, I trust. It's because it's already been pointed out to you what the answer is. And I already told you. They're not really after Jesus for a genuine question. They're after a confession from Jesus so that they can incriminate Jesus. Now, John, you ask, okay, Jesus says, I already told you. Where? Because John doesn't actually record Jesus yet telling the crowds that I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Except privately to the Samaritan woman. Yet Jesus says, I told you. But here's what Jesus says. Notice, he says, look at the works that I do in my Father's name. They answer your question. My words are validated by my works. Verse 25. Remember, Jesus, I am the bread of life. That's an amazing claim. Watch this. Take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people? Or, I am the light of the world. That's an astonishing claim, Jesus. Watch this. This man born blind who can't see, who's in utter darkness, he's going to see. Jesus wasn't some cult leader. He wasn't hiding what he believes or doing what he does in the corner where nobody can see or only a select few. It was public. It was crystal clear. Jesus is saying, you know, I already told you. My works bear witness to this. And even notice, many believed. Many have believed in this so far in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I've been clear, but you have failed to believe. In fact, it's not only that, you won't even consider the evidence that is right in front of you. It doesn't matter what you say or the evidence that you show me, I already don't believe. That's what they're saying. They just want another reason to further give them Uh, feel comfortable in their unbelief. I have to ask here, friend, what about you? How devoted are you to your unbelief? Have you ever considered the claims of Jesus? I mean seriously considered the claims of Jesus, not I googled Jesus and this article came up, 10 reasons why I can't trust him. I read like three of them. They seemed pretty convincing. I'm done. No, I mean, have you like read through the gospels? We have four of them, not just one. We have a whole New Testament. We have a whole scripture, a whole canon of scripture to show you that Jesus Christ, what he did. Have you ever considered that? Have you honestly and fully examined the evidence 
And if you or anyone you know needs help thinking through these things, please let us as a church know. We want to help you. Please let me know. You see, these people were so devout in their opposition to Jesus that they, what? They missed the Messiah, the very one they were waiting for. The very security they were anticipating from this Messiah, they missed it because they were so secure in themselves, in their own ideas, in their own abilities. They thought they could jump over the rope. It felt so secure to stick with what they already knew. And if they confessed Jesus, what humility that would require. I was wrong about the Messiah. Furthermore, like we saw, uh, well, we didn't see, but it happened in John chapter 9. This man born blind, who was healed, who's worshiping Jesus, he got kicked out of the synagogue for coming to Jesus. Which for us, we're like, big deal, get kicked out of church, who cares? But for them, in the first century Jewish world, it was like getting kicked out of your family life. You could lose it all. It feels much safer to stay right where I am in my thoughts about Jesus. It would cost me too much humility, and I could lose relationships, friendships. But what, what Jesus is showing us here as the story unfolds is, don't be so secure in your unbelief against Jesus. Because life outside of Jesus, here's the thing, if there's still Orthodox Jews and there is conservative Jews, they're still looking for a Messiah. They're still searching for security. It's a reminder, if you go outside of Jesus looking for this type of security that only he promises and he can give, you'll never stop searching. Never. It's a never-ending pursuit of security. Now, many of us today are not looking for a Messiah, per se, but all of us want security. Think of how much we talk about security. National security, home security, job security, credit card security, church security, thank you. Or we find, we find security, we know we do, in our family. It's not a bad thing. We find it in relationships. We find it in our health. We find it in our wealth. But here's the problem with all of that. Not that we shouldn't find comfort in security and family and relationships. But here's the problem if that's our ultimate security. Life is outside of our control. Sin reigns in this world. And as many of you know, even recently, family members are taken. Relationships fall apart. Our health decays. Wealth can be gone in a moment. I mean, a worldwide pandemic could come in and shut down everything. And politicians, I say no more. Everything and anything that gives you security today or yesterday or last week or for the past five years could in reality be gone tomorrow. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just helping you think. You think, I, I, I got this. I can handle it. doesn't matter what comes my way. But don't let your own sense of security miss out on where true security is ultimately found. It's never ending. You'll never find it outside of Jesus, which leads us to point number two. The never-ending security of Jesus. The never-ending security of, of Jesus. So at this point in the story, when we're back in John chapter 10, you can picture those who are surrounding Jesus. They're, they still got their fists clenched, smirking in their unbelief. But Jesus keeps speaking in verse 26. He doesn't end the conversation, but he goes further. Again, he takes them further where, when they were anticipating. Verse 26 you do not believe 
because you are not my sheep. He is showing them their complete inability to believe. Like he's previously taught in John chapter 6, no one is able to come to the Father, no one is able to come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. Their inability, all pride is gone. And this stands in sharp, sharp, sharp contrast to verses 27 and 30. On the one hand, they don't believe. They're not my sheep. But look at verse 27. Jesus' followers, as we learned about last week, they hear his voice. Jesus knows them, and they follow him. A little bit of Christianity 101. You want a definition of a Christian? There it is. Jesus knows them, his people hear his voice, and his people follow them. Follow him. But Jesus sends us even deeper. You want me to speak plainly, Jesus says? Well, here it is. And it's actually glorious. And it leaves us in awe, in wonder, in many ways. So the first thing we see here is that salvation is initiated by God. First point, salvation is initiated by God. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 28, I give them, I give them eternal life. He gives it to us. You know what this means? We don't work for it. We don't earn it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you won't be good enough on the day of judgment when you stand before the Holy One. You can't. But even for us as Christians, sometimes we think of the gospel or present the gospel in a way that says, God's done 90% of the work. He's got to do the other 10%. Or it's 90% God, 10% you. But even if it was 0.00005% us and God did all the rest, you wouldn't make it. God initiates salvation. Jesus gives eternal life. He gives it. But notice something else that's going on here in these verses. He says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me. So before Jesus gives eternal life, it's the father gives the sheep, his people to Jesus. And so you may be starting to lose me. It may start to be going over your head. That's okay. This is getting mysterious. This is getting high and lofty. And if you're like, I can't fully grasp all of this, that's okay. We're talking about the God Almighty who made all things, who sustains all things who is eternal. It's probably going to be a few things that he knows and can understand that we can't. But the Father gives Jesus the sheep. And what we're reminded of here is Christian. If you're a Christian here this morning, God's love for you and his intention to save you began in eternity past. It's a deep, deep, deep love. Remember what Ephesians 1, 4 says? He chose us in him when we decided to believe, when we made some corrections in our life. No, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Just like Israel, right? Abraham in the Old Testament. He was worshiping idols. It's not that Abraham decided one day, you know, I should probably get my life together. Maybe God can help me. No, God came to Abraham 
and said, go, trust me, go. Just like he does to all of us who believe. I know some of us, this makes us uncomfortable. I find great comfort and help in what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I believe this doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. See, salvation is initiated by God. It was God's idea. God made the first call. And what this does to us, we stand back and we say, why? Why does God love me? And in a sense, his answer is, because I love you, and I've loved you from eternity past. Salvation is initiated by God. But notice what else is going on here. Salvation is kept by God. Salvation is kept by God. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 28. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hands. And... Verse 29, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. As if it were possible for somebody to snatch anything out of Jesus' hands. We've also got the eternal, omnipotent Father behind us, and we're wrapped in his hands as well. Nothing, and this is the same verb that's used earlier in the Good Shepherd passage, remember when he was talking about the wolves that are going to come? They're going to try to snatch you away. That ain't happening if you're in Jesus. His hands and the Father's hands, and we learn elsewhere in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit has sealed us. As Josh prayed and praised God for the Trinity, the Trinity isn't just a doctrine that's meant to stay up here and we're meant to look at it. It is mysterious, it is awe, but it's real and it's super practical for your life, Christian, and has massive implications for your salvation. And Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. Christian, this means that our confidence about life after death, yes, we actually believe that this is not the only life we have. There is a life after this. Our life after death is not wishful thinking. It's built on the eternal union of the Father and the Son in eternity past. You are eternally secure in Christ, Christian, if you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, you are eternally secure in him. Now, before we move on, let's note what this doesn't mean very quickly. Jesus is not saying or teaching that I said a prayer once, signed a card, I'm secure. I can do whatever I want now. That is not what Jesus is saying. If you claim to be a Christian, but there's no repentance of sin in your life, you don't love Jesus, you don't think about Jesus, you don't want to serve Jesus, I'm not saying you'll be perfect by all means. None of us are perfect. But there's going to be evidence of that happening in your life, that you truly trust Jesus. So don't think for a moment that this idea of eternally secure means I just name Jesus and I'll do whatever I want with the rest of my life. That's not what he's saying. 
It doesn't, this also doesn't mean that you'll never have any doubts. Right, Christian? I trust I'm not the only one who, who has doubts from time to time. And I'm sorry, well really I'm not sorry to quote Spurgeon twice, but here it is. He says, as a believer, you may fall on the ship of faith, but by Jesus Christ, you do not fall off the ship of faith. You'll doubt sometimes. But what you should do with those doubts is take them back to Scripture. Take them to other brothers and sisters who you know and trust, and let's work through them together. And finally, what this doesn't mean is that you will know all the answers of where God is taking you in life or when he sends various trials your way. It doesn't mean you'll know all the answers. Remember we talked about Abraham a moment ago? Remember when God called Abraham? He didn't say, okay, Abraham, here's what it's going to look like for the next 20 years. Here's when this is going to happen. Here's when this is going to happen. Don't worry. He just said, Abraham, go. I'll show you all the details. It'll all make sense later. Faith, trusting in Jesus, believing in him, is not knowing all the answers. I remember an illustration that one of my professors gave to me before, and so this is not my own. I'm not that clever, uh, but I think it is powerful. Imagine, imagine for a moment, uh, for those of you who are blessed with a, a good father, a loving father, Imagine one night you're driving home, and it's late at night. Maybe the road's a little bit wet, and you're, you're driving quite carefully. It's dark. And you're driving, and you look in the rearview mirror, and, and way, way in the distance, back on the interstate, you see this car. You see these headlights, like, weaving in and out. And, you know, it clicks in your mind, like, that's odd that he seems to be coming rather fast. And then as the car gets closer, he's like, almost cutting off people, weaving in and out of traffic, and you're like, oh my goodness, this, this guy seems rather crazy. I don't know what's going on. And then as he passes you, he is absolutely flying, and you think, this guy's crazy. What is he doing? I have no idea what he's doing. There can't be a good reason for this. But just in that moment, as all those thoughts infiltrate your head, you catch and you realize, that's, that's my father. That's his car. He's driving it. I saw him. And you know your father so well that all of those things you just thought about him, you know he's got a good reason for going as fast as he is. You know, that's my dad. I don't know why he's driving like this, but I know there's an emergency. There's somewhere that needs him. He's not crazy. He's not reckless. I know him. I don't have all the answers right now in this moment, but I know him. That's Christian security, right? We don't have all the answers. But we know our dad's driving the car. And he is more trustworthy than anyone. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end. The father gives the sheep to Jesus. Jesus dies for his sheep. We learned elsewhere, as I mentioned, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Trinity guarantees your salvation from beginning to end to end. So take a breath. Maybe it's hard to do with your mask on, but take a breath. The Father's got you, Christian. Take a breath. 
the eternal son of God who died for you has got you, Christian. And take one more breath because the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. Our security in life and in death rests not on our love for God, but on his love for us. Security in Jesus is never ending. Nobody will snatch you out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. But let's move on in this passage. Look at Jesus' claim there in verse 30. And, and as this story unfolds, notice how it happens. The Jews in verse 31 are picking up stones ready to stone Jesus. Yet if you glance down at verse 38, Jesus is again saying, look at the works that I'm doing. He's inviting them to believe. So I've called this the rational invitation to Jesus. The third point, the rational invitation to Jesus. It's one that requires you to think and see how Jesus is arguing, but ultimately it's another invitation to come to him. It's rational, it's sane, it's logical. Jesus calls us to faith, to believe, but it's not a blind belief. It's not a blind faith. There's reason. So let's think through this. First, who is he? Right? Remember I said at the beginning that deep longing of security we're all looking for is found in Jesus. So who is he? Who exactly is he? If you claim to know my brother, if you claim to know my brother, even if you know his name, Jesse, but you say nothing about Jeeps or habanero peppers, you don't know my brother. It's the same way with Jesus. You can claim the name of Jesus, but if you don't actually know who he is, you don't know Jesus. And so may we be careful and look at what scripture tells us about who Jesus really is. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. So they pick up their stones. You can feel the intensity rising. And Jesus, who's like standing before a firing squad, calm, collective, says, not so fast. Tell me, verse 32, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which one of them are you going to stone me for? Was it the man who couldn't walk for like three decades that I healed? I could see how that would make you want to stone me. Maybe it was the man who was born blind who can now see. Is, is that the one? Look at verse 33. No, it's not what you do. It's what you say. You, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, underline it. You, a man, claim to be God. You, a mere man, make yourself to be God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Remember the first core tenet of Judaism, as we read about this morning, the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Do you see what Jesus is doing in verse 30? Hear, O Israel, the Father and I are one. Jesus is speaking plainly. Don't believe the lies that Jesus never claimed to be God. I have no reason why that's so popular when you search the internet and skeptics 
They say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, it says right here. And not only did Jesus claim that, and Christians believe that, but the opponents knew exactly what he was saying. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinct from the Father, yet the Word was God. This passage is very important for helping us understand the Trinity. But do you see the irony that's going on here? You see the sharp irony that John is pointing out to his readers. The Jews look at God. They're looking at God. He's standing right in front of them, and they are claiming he's only a man. Jesus' response. Look at Jesus' response. And it, it kind of comes in two parts. And it begins here in verse 34. And this, this first argument is called lesser to the greater. Uh, an old pastor named John Gill, I read about this in his commentary. It's lesser to the greater. So Jesus is saying here in verse 34, it sounds really confusing to us, but I promise it's actually not all that confusing. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. So first what Jesus is doing is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Follow me on this. Remember, it's rational. It's going to take your brain, so think through this. Based upon your law, Jesus says... You say that I'm committing blasphemy. But you must be forgetting. Your law also describes judges in Psalm 82 who are human beings who rule on behalf of God, who are not God but less than God. That verse calls them gods. It uses that term. And we agree that Scripture can't be broken. We could spend a whole sermon on that, right? Jesus' view of the Scripture, some random psalm that probably none of us are that familiar with. Jesus says it can't be broken. So Christians, why do you believe the Bible so much? Well, remember we follow Jesus and this is what he said. But anyway, we agree on the scripture. You see what Jesus is doing though? You have a problem with the way I'm using words, but in your own law, beings other than God are referred to as gods, these judges. But he's not, he's not leaving it there. Jesus is not saying, so therefore, I'm a man. I claim to be God. See you guys later. It's not what Jesus is doing. He's establishing an argument. That's the first point, but it goes further. What he says is, rather, if humans could have a title like this, then it makes sense. It only makes sense that I, the one set apart, the one sanctified, the one who's truly re-consecrating the temple and sent by God, should be referred to as the Son of God. So he's saying, look, Scripture uses this term like this for other humans. But if I'm the one who's actually sent by God, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one set apart from God. It would make sense that I am the Son of God. But it's not only that. This is a scathing rebuke of the Jewish people who are right in front of him. Most likely the leaders. When John talks about the Jews gathering around him, he's usually referring to the leaders. And we don't have time, but if you were looking at the context of Psalm 82, what it's showing is that God is in a courtroom. 
He's in a courtroom. And what he's doing is he's speaking to those who are on earth who are called to make judgments, like judges. Like the Jewish leaders are currently doing on Jesus. They're making a judgment on who he is. But in Psalm 82, God is frustrated by their judgment. And he says, they have no understanding. They walk about in darkness. So can you imagine? Can you imagine when the Jewish leaders actually remembered the context of Psalm 82 and what Jesus is doing? He's not only arguing from lesser to greater. Yes, I am the son of God. It makes sense that I have this title with everything that I'm doing. But also, you who are supposed to be making right judgments and leading God's people correctly, you're walking in darkness. Darkness. You are blind. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And finally, we're called to trust him. We're called to trust him. Again, Jesus says, look at my works. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. He's not calling you to accept a blind faith. Like Christianity is true, just believe it. He says, look at the evidence. The Father's in me and I am in him. But notice what happens. Or sorry, Jesus in John chapter 20, or John writes that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you may say, I'm not standing there. I can't actually see the works that Jesus did. Therefore, I have a different excuse from them. And John would later say, no, you don't. Because all of the signs that Jesus did that I think are the most important ones for you to see are written in this book, in this gospel. So that one, you can be held accountable. You can see the evidence and you can believe in Jesus. Have life in his name, like we talked about last week. Abundant life, eternal life. But verse 39 Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They still are remaining secure in their unbelief. They seek to arrest Jesus. Somehow he escapes. I'm not sure if that was like ninja Jesus escaping or supernatural Jesus. I don't know what was going on, but he got away from them. And John informs us that he went back across the Jordan where John first began baptizing. And there, get this, you, you know, you thought, this story's over, it didn't help, the leaders and the Jewish people just don't like Jesus even further, but look what happens, verse 42, and many believed in him there. Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, as the lights were shining all over Jerusalem, this Hanukkah, there was an even brighter light shining. One that was utterly unique. No one had ever seen anything like this light before. The hammer, he's got a great name, and he was pretty cool. He led a rebellion. But this guy is totally different. I've never seen anything like him before. As John the Baptist, as he refers to here, I don't think that's just saying Jesus went across the Jordan, da-da-da, forget about it. 
Now, remember what John the Baptist first said about Jesus? He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone. He came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light of the world, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, we're all born sinners, right? But Jesus, through his death, his resurrection, and now ascension sits as Lord and King over all. You want true security? That deep longing you have for restfulness in your heart? It's found in Jesus. It's rooted in eternity promise you, based on what God says in his word, you won't find it anywhere else. I'm not just saying this to non-Christians, I'm saying it to Christians too, right? We need to be reminded of this. We have no fear of life or death because this is who Jesus is. When we have those fears, we run to this Jesus. So my Christian brothers and sisters, trust him. Trust him. And if you're not yet a Christian, trust him. The deep longing we all have for true security is found in Jesus. So we must knew, know who he is and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for another Sunday to worship you, to gather as your people, to sing songs to you, to read your scripture, to pray to you, and to hear your word. And so, Father, may we not walk away from this passage like James warns us about as somebody who looks in the mirror and sees things that need to be changed or areas they need to trust or doubts they need to address whether we're Christians or non-Christians, may we not look in that mirror and see those things and walk away in our own security. But may we humbly once again confess that we are in great need of you and that you provide security built in eternity past and forever will last. So Father, transform us through the power of your word power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, our good shepherd. Amen.